This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for this podcast to go to share useful stuff that we know. We're supposed to be Skyping, but Marshall is griping because there is no Procopenco. He'll show in a moment or two. No need to get into a stew, cause Marshall is ready to go. And Stan will be two in a moment, and then it will happen, a session of draftsmen. When Stan is off Skyping, Marshall will stop griping, and we will get on with the show. Yeah. Hi, Stan. Marshall, what's going on? Good to see you. The pleasure is mine, Marshall. <laughs> oh, no, it's all mine. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> hey, Stan, we have neglected voicemails this entire season. We haven't done any yet. Shouldn't yeah. we pay attention to the listeners and what they have to ask? No. Oh, no, I think we should. <laughs> I think yeah, that would be the good attitude. We've we've been telling people to leave their voicemails, but we haven't been listening to them. <laughs> How many do we have now? <laughs> We're several hundreds in. It's 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 like having a treasure chest that just keeps growing and growing in wealth and you never spend it. We got 10 voicemails ready for us. We probably won't get through all of them, but they're okay, here. We'll, we're we're here. We'll, we'll see we're, if we can do here. them rapidly. And hey, everybody, yeah. the voicemails are competitive. Oh, yeah. You know, you have to do a good question for Charlie yeah. to get past the uh, gauntlet of Charlie. Some of the questions are, are the same. Oh, that's right, too. Yeah. The really popular things people want to know about. Are yeah. asked several times, so okay, we got to well. pick one of them. Okay, let's get right to voicemails. Hey, Stan and Marshall. I was wondering, how do you guys get back into the zone if you kind of lose it? So, if you're drawing and uh, something distracts you and uh, or you have, to, you have to attend to something else for, for a moment, how what do you guys do to get back into that focus? Is there a ritual or is there a certain music or something like um, maybe you have a tea or something like that that just puts you back into that zone? Thanks. Yeah, for me, the biggest thing is my environment um, where being in the environment puts me in the zone, right? There, there's a lot of different cues in my environment that just kind of trigger my brain to go into a focused zone and very few distractions that take me away from it. Um, now, I do get that a lot, especially before the pandemic when my team would constantly come in and distract me. <laughs> not, not anything bad on them, but you know, they have questions. They, they're doing work that the, and I'm like the bottleneck and they got to come in and ask me questions. And, and that, that takes my mind out of what I'm doing and into what they're doing. But as soon as they leave and I'm alone again, my environment puts me back into the zone pretty easily. I don't find it a struggle where I'm just like thinking about what they just said because of all the cues around me to bring me back. Um, and I think those cues could be different for anybody. What the, you know, what it is, it's for some people, the music that's playing will put them into the zone for some people. Like he mentioned tea for me, tea is actually a really good one where the ritual, I mean, look, I have right in front of me, I have this tea set, right? Yeah. And I just, I, I boil some tea and I'm just like sipping and it, it, it it's just that process puts me back into that uh, that mental flow uh, that I'm 
used to that my brain is used to having while I'm sipping this tea in this cup, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's all these these little things that triggers your brain to go to a specific mode. Um, yeah. And it, it literally could be anything. You could have a foot massager under you <laughs> that yeah. you're always yeah. rubbing your feet on. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that's not what I do, but like it could literally be anything that triggers your brain to go into that state. Yeah. Um, and everybody just needs to find their own thing. But the biggest thing is you, you have to make sure that you don't have natural distractions around you mm-hmm. um, because, yeah, sometimes something can happen that takes you too far away from that mental flow uh, and it's really difficult to get, to get back. Like something just really makes you angry because you, you looked at some notification <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, a cup of tea is not going to solve that. You're just going to stay angry or something, you know, yeah. just don't have notifications on. Uh, good idea. Don't have notifications on. Don't allow the distractions. Yeah. Or put a timer. You can have notifications on throughout your day, but not during this specific three hour period, right? Yeah. Set, set specific periods where it's like, this is the focus time. Yeah. I've dealt with this all my life and I think that to never be distracted and never have to go through re-entry could make you incapable of going through re-entry into the zone. So, sometimes for it to happen, uh, it's just reality and we've got to deal with it. But having said that, there is a reason why we want to get back into the zone is the zone is so efficient, ideas flow, everything works best and so I think This is why environment is important. Ritual is important. Uh, There's a reason why so many writers in the 20th century, when you see them posing for a picture, they're holding a cigarette. They would light up a cigarette before they would start working. I saw the writer in my life who was our babysitter and a TV writer. He used to always smoke before he'd work and I got this image that you should do that. I know I've mentioned that before and I'm sorry to mention it because some people say, no, 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 don't smoke. Uh, Coffee, tea, decaf, anything that you can say, when I sit down here, this ritual prepares me for that. We take it seriously. It's sacred time and arranging lifestyle to prize that time, to prioritize it, uh, to recognize that's where your best work's going to happen. It is important to you and uh, to say no to other things. Oh gosh, stories about the zone. And how when you get into a week or two of productivity on one thing is, uh, you know, some great things historically have happened that way. Yeah. So, yeah, arrange your lifestyle around it. There's a reason why creativity is a lifestyle. Yeah. And actually, as you were saying that, um, I thought of one other thing. Sometimes I notice that my, I get out of the zone within my environment, right? Like I... I'm sitting on my in my studio. I'm and I get into like browsing some topic, just you know, on the internet, and that takes me away from whatever I'm supposed to be doing. And now I'm just totally into that. And now I have to actually get out of that environment. My environment. I have to go outside, go for a walk, and just like do something else. Get my brain back into yeah. to normal mode, and then come back into my studio and continue with that. A reset, right? A reset. Sometimes it helps to get away from your environment because something within yeah. your environment caused the distraction. So, I, I do that sometimes as well. Good point. All right. Next question. Hey, Stan and Marshall. Um, my name is Isaiah, a local painter here in Kansas. Um, I had a question after watching some of your folks' episodes. Um, it doesn't seem you folks have ever um, kind of mentioned the, the flow state for an artist. Um, I was kind <laughs> of wondering just... what tips you had. Or like any routines or quirks you had um, when it comes to uh, achieving flow state, okay, Charlie. or whether that's even a state you'd want to be in. I find that when I when I personally get into flow, it it leads to a high period of uh, productivity. Um, but sometimes when I look back, I don't quite like the work I've done. Um, I was just wondering if that's you know beneficial for beginner artists, or if it's even a, a state you'd want to achieve, or you know. Um, anyway, I love the show, love the podcast. Um, thanks for taking my question. Bye. I think that Charlie should answer the previous voicemail with this voicemail. This person has pointed out that the flow state seems to be productive. And just because when you look back on it, it wasn't your best work, that happens whether you're in the flow state or not. We think things are good sometimes and then we look back at them and they aren't. That's part of the process. But yeah, 
the flow state is really valuable and you want to get into that and protect it. Yeah, yeah. Even if later on you think whatever you produced during that flow state was bad, I think it doesn't matter. The flow state is still a state where you're creating um, and ideas are just flowing out. It, it's better to be in that state than a state of not producing anything, right? At least you're moving in some direction, right? Because if, if you create something you don't like, at least you've now learned something from that. You've learned a lesson. You failed. Failure is part of the process. So, yeah, it, flow state is not there to bring a success every time. It's to be moving quickly towards a direction. That's it. And it's enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really what we all do this for. It's for that state of just pure enjoyment of, of creation. Short answer, flow state, good. See <laughs> yes. it, prize it. <laughs> Protect it. Uh, hi, Stan. Hi, Marshall. Uh, my name is Austin, and I'm calling from Hamilton, Alabama. Uh, I had a few questions that pertain to using reference and drawing. Uh, let's say your goal is to draw one real person's head in a fairly realistic style from several different angles and with a range of expressions, but you don't have many photos of them to work with and no access to drawing them live. Would you just draw what you could of them and move on to another model or use your imagination or references of other people's heads and sort of fill in the blanks of the angles and expressions you're missing from the original model? Have either of you drawn one person extensively and which approach have you taken? Thank you for your time. Interesting. So you, you don't have a bunch of angles of that person's head, but you want to draw different angles of that person's head. So, I, I feel like the only way to be able to do that is if you have a lot of experience drawing people's heads and you know the structure of the skull, uh, you, you know, you know, all the anatomy, you just have experience drawing a lot of different types of people and you can kind of project some of the subtlety you're seeing from one angle and, and you, you can imagine what it would look like from a different angle based off of experience from things that you've done before. Um, if you don't have much experience, it's going to be really difficult to do that. So, I don't, I don't, you know, <laughs> you could try, you certainly should try. That's a great exercise. Yeah. But if, you, if this is like a professional job, it, it's, you know, that's going to be a huge challenge. Um, I, I'm curious what he, what this is even for. <laughs> Cause you said, uh, or do you just move on to a different model? Yeah, it sounds like there's a specific thing going on yeah. there that we're not sure of all of it. Yeah, the, the purpose here is very important because if, if the purpose is to learn as much as you can, then sure, go ahead and, and use this one angle to draw many other angles and that's a, you're going to learn a lot from doing that. That's a great exercise. But if this is, this, this is a specific project where you have to ha produce spe something specific that has a purpose, uh, well, that's not about learning, that's about actually like creating something that someone may be paying for. Then I would say, yeah, maybe take photos of other models that maybe look kind of similar <laughs> if you can mm. even find that. Um, use as much as you can to help you make a better product in that case. Here's my answer. Yeah. Study human heads from all those sources that we've talked about before. Draw a lot of human heads. Just get as familiar as you can. Uh, and then, get into the flow state. Then you won't need to ask anybody what I should do because you'll be on the, this ride of, hey, I could do this. Hey, I could do this. What if that? Things will come to you. But it seems like you're asking a question that I'm not sure whether it's specifically about a particular project that we could look at it and say, oh, here's what I do in a case like that. Or whether you're asking a more general question, but the general question would be answered. Learn how to do it do it a lot, and then make your decisions on how to solve problems. It'll be different for every every problem. Yeah. If this is a professional job and you just got to make this good, try to increase your chances of success um, by using as much reference as possible to help you out. And look at how artists whom you admire uh, Try it one way and try it another way and try it another way and they might not be happy with it. Look at how many different heads Norman Rockwell would do to decide on one 
and observe that about the people that you admire their work. It inspires you to see it as exploration rather than I have to get a quick solution to this. Cool. Next. Next. Hey, Marshall. Hey, Stan. My name is Savannah, and I just want to say thank you so much for your podcast. It's so great. And Marshall, your voice is so amazing. <laughs> and I have a question that is technically about art, but also about how you think. There was a post going around social media a while ago that described that some people think in an inner monologue, while some people think with, like, visualizations and kind of feelings. I personally have always thought with, like, more visual images in my mind that I translate as best I can with my speech, but I can focus on continuous thoughts if I really try. I'm curious if you've ever noticed a more dominant thought pattern for your brain or how you process information, and if you think it could have an effect on how people can learn to draw or maybe how well they can express themselves through their drawings. I've never been great at expressing myself or talking. I actually had to write this question down just so I could call you guys, but I've always been able to draw really well. Like, even when I was a little kid, I could kind of just pick up things that other kids couldn't really quick, but they talked a lot better than me. So hmm. I was just curious your input on that, and once again, thank you so much for the podcast. Bye. Wow, good question. Yeah. The difference between thinking in imagery and thinking in a series of words. Which one are you? I think much more in series of words, much yeah, more in inner monologues and dialogues. Yeah, I'm totally a, a, a conversation in my head all the time, not a series of pictures for sure. Even to the uh, to the detriment of having a chattering monkey going on in your mind all the time is, yeah. is what I, I've got. But I definitely do both. I constantly take notes on my phone because my thoughts naturally translate to my words in my notes, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like uh, 10 to 20 times a day, I take my phone out and I, and I type some notes into my note app. Well, look at, compare that with some people I know who are image oriented and who are not that articulate with words. Because they just don't do that. But they think in images and they work in images. So there's certainly an advantage for an artist to be less word oriented and more sensory and visually oriented to where they're seeing pictures and seeing pictures and seeing pictures. So I definitely do both, but I know I incline toward words. So that was the question about how we think. Uh, we, we lean towards one side or the other, but that doesn't mean that we can't be good at the uh, both. Like, I might think in, in words, but that doesn't mean I can't create pictures that look good, mm -hmm. right? In the same way that she said she thinks in pictures, but she had to write down her question and read it. She did a great job of writing down a question that was said very eloquently. She did a great job of communicating with words. Yeah. She just had to think about it a little more. She, she had to develop that question. Uh, whereas someone could have probably just dialed the phone and 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 done it live, but, but who cares? Who cares? Like I, she cares. She okay. <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> when we were talking about strengths finder, one of the things that David Kiersey did with the Myers Briggs is he likened our strengths to cards that we play. We all have every card in the deck. But you've got some cards that are your strong cards, and those are the ones that you tend to use the most, and they're the ones that you tend to get best at. And so, if you really have to sit down and think to do one or the other, which means, means more work, Yeah. but you can still do a good job with either. And, and you having the strength uh, with pictures might, as you're making that translation from pictures to words, your end result might be different from somebody who just naturally is good with words because you have to make that translation. And thinking in pictures, you know, could take you down a different path than somebody who thinks with words. Does that yes. make sense? Like you have a different yes. advantage over the other person. You just, you, you just have a different style of communicating. I don't think that one is, is better or worse. It's just, it's just different and, and you, you learn how to work with your strengths. Well, here's one reason why I think this is such a good question. This brings up something that does go on in our minds. We've got different ways of thinking 
And uh, Savannah, if you are able to do both, great. But here's what I recommend. Whichever one is your strong suit, look to the other so that you're looking back and forth to these. I don't know how many writers, I mean, and I don't mean writers of film, uh, writers of words to be read. Joan Didion is one, C.S. Lewis is another, Harold Pinter is another, that they've talked about their writing process and they insist on the importance of seeing images and working from these images in their imagination to get the writing out. So, if you're a word person, images are a place you go to refuel. Uh, and if you are a picture person, I recommend using words, using clustering, putting words down where you've got things wrapped around, uh, circles wrapped around them to see how they relate in, uh, excuse me, to see how they relate to the picture you're working at. Uh, sometimes words will help you solve problems with images. Often words will, to name it, that I've got a color temperature problem there, that that, that contrast right there is clashing. Uh, so, yes, just identifying a set of polarities within thinking is yeah. a great way to yeah. identify problems. I've found that by thinking with words, I'm able to think more logically through certain problems than some people that think mostly with pictures. And mm -hmm. I can communicate ideas uh, better, <laughs> more clearly mm -hmm. than others. Um, that think in pictures uh, and personally I like that there's definitely a disadvantage like I can't do what Kim Jong-gi does because of that extreme he, he thinks in pictures obviously right and so I can't do what he does but he can't do what I do either and that's great I love that difference between people like I, I learned art very differently from him I learned it as more of a science Right? This is a series of facts that I need to learn and organize in my brain. I got to ask why and how. The same way I learned biology in school is how I learned art. Whereas he just like observed the world, just like take snapshots of everything and figure out how things work by observing the world. Um, and so, yeah, it, it leads to these different ways of improving, but you both, both types of of minds can improve and get to a very similar result just in a very different way. Each one has historic value. Yeah. Think about if you're in a panic emotionally, a person could show you a picture to talk you down or to, excuse me, to calm you down. They could also talk with you and use word, let's look at the situation rationally and talk you down. Either way, they have value. So, I liked the question because yeah. it could prompt thought beyond our answers. Cool. Next. Hi, Draftsman. I'm a 14-year-old high school student and I've been studying on my own to be an artist for years now. I listen to podcasts, watch videos, I read a ton of books and it's been working pretty well for me so far. In the past year, I've taken up two major projects, producing a webcomic on my own and creating an indie game with my brother as a game artist. I've wow. learned a ton from these projects and how to apply what I've learned elsewhere, but I'm kind of worried. My question for you guys is if I should be instead using my time to study gesture, composition, shape design, and anatomy more closely. I already study it because I draw around 25 hours a week, but I worry it's not enough and these projects are distracting me from my studies. Thanks. Oh, and I love this podcast. It's a goldmine for artistic knowledge, and I've learned a lot. We're going to give the same answer, I can tell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do do what you're doing. It, it's it's so much more important than the homework, the, the gesture, and the perspective. You will naturally, based on just hearing you talk, you will fill in those gaps of knowledge when you need it in your project. If you're doing your project and you feel like you got to improve on gesture, you're going to get out the books, you're going to read about gesture and you're going to practice. You're, you'll, you'll, you'll get it when you need it and yeah. that's a much better time to get it than, than when you're just going through a series of uh, uh, someone else's class that put it in their own order. It's yeah. so much better to learn it 
practically in a real project. It's going to stick. You're going to you're going to learn how gesture is applied to something real rather than to this exercise. And that, that's so much more useful. Yeah, if you're dancing and everyone around you says, wow, you're dancing and you feel like I'm dancing. Oh, these are new dance moves. They're coming from my impulses. Uh, don't stop dancing to take <laughs> dance lessons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you're running out of ideas and when you're running out of the ability to do something you've got an idea to do, that's when you pull away from it to study. Yeah. Good. Congratulations. It's inspiring to hear that, that at 14 years old, you're doing something that many other people would not need to ask questions or have so many doubts about what they're doing if they would simply get rolling as you're getting rolling. That ambition, that motivation, that desire to do the projects is, is wonderful. You're blazing. Most people want what she has, right? Yeah. Most people are like, God, how do I find the motivation? I've been doing these studies and I'm improving, but I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't find my voice. I don't know my style. It's like they, they, they're going through these classes and these books, but they don't know what to do with it. Right. She's got the opposite thing going where she, ha she wants to do all this personal stuff. She knows exactly what she wants to do. And I don't think that's a problem at all. No. If, she, if she tries, if she tries to push that away, it's like she's pushing away this thing that she naturally has that everyone's trying to get. Yeah. So no, I, I think that's great. We're cheering you on. Everyone else, be like her. Okay. Hey there, this is Jordan. So one of your previous episodes of Draftsman, you asked, "Do you give up a lot? And are you usually successful when you set down to do things?" And so. When I was younger, I failed at most everything and often gave up. Now I feel like I've succeeded and become a little bit more reliable. But I would ask, uh, there are a lot of exercises or techniques for developing like perspective or line work or confidence. Are there any uh, tools for learning how to become more reliable and learning how to persevere through, I don't know, difficult stuff and, and like, like stick to stuff? Thanks. This is kind of an argument for school. How so? When you're in school, you're submitting to deadlines and criteria that you didn't invent. And therefore, if you can say, I'll do this for a year or 12 classes of my choice and get A's in every one of my choose to get A's in, you've got something to measure. <laughs> Does it make you more reliable? Uh, I, it is one argument for school. Yes. Okay. It's pretend jobs. I mean, you can have pretend jobs for yourself, right? You, yes, you can. <laughs> it's not necessarily an argument for school. It's an argument for classes. It's an argument for, for this month or these three months or this season, I'm going to have someone else's curriculum that I'm going to say, I'll go through this. The most extreme example would be to go all the way through a four-year program that's a, an intense regimen or just to go through Nicolaides exercises, but you can take smaller doses. Ivan Brunetti's cartooning course is a 15-week course on cartooning, philosophy and practice. Uh, I think it's showing up. It's, it's a, not really, I wouldn't call it a regimen, but it is a prescribed schedule of what to do week to week. I feel like with, with this, it's... Yeah. Just doing things, <laughs> just like failing is good in general. When we we we've said this a lot, um, and becoming reliable is it, it's correlated with experience. If you don't know how to do something, you're not reliable. You're going to fail. But quitting, quitting is different. Quitting is more about discipline and self-esteem, right? I think. What do you think? Well, what is quitting dependent on? Good quitting or bad quitting. Good quitting well, yeah, is quitting. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a good point too, actually. Yeah. But what about bad quitting? <laughs> Early quitting for when you shouldn't quit. Well, remember what we got out of one of the books. I think it was Art and Fear that quitting is only quitting if you don't come back to it. <laughs> God, yeah, I remember that conversation. Yeah. So, what if you come back to it when you're 95 the day before you died? You didn't quit. <laughs> there are times when it's wise to stop yeah. and, and regroup. There was also that thing that was in Hitmakers about changing strategies. 
Yeah. That it's like I intended to go through this for one year and not deviate from it. And it's now that I'm three months into it, I'm seeing it's not doing me what I thought it was going to do. But the bigger danger here is a pattern of quitting. It's where you yeah. start anything and when it gets hard, you qu naturally just quit. That's the yeah. problem. It's not like you're, you're analyzing all of your decisions at the moment and prioritizing and you now decided that that one thing is not as high on your priorities as it used to be and so you stop doing it. That's not the same thing as quitting in my eyes. Yeah. These are questions though that these are just too hard to answer. <laughs> Ooh, Marshall. They're, they're <laughs> questions for therapists. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm glad for this, Jordan. You had a pattern of quitting and then you got better at it. Yeah. So, you could answer the question better than we could. <laughs> yeah. I've had a number of things I've quit on and a number of things I've held through. So, it's it's I haven't really given this that much thought. Yeah, his question really was like do do you have any exercises? Yes, and I do. It's to sub, it's to submit to a regimen, uh, choose a regimen, mm -hmm. choose a teacher, choose a course and submit to it. It's one commitment, not a life commitment. For this month or three months, I am going to do this work and then assess it afterward. That's the best I can do. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Charlie, this is a great time for a sponsor. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, Stan and Marshall. This is Stella. Marshall knows me from the Turning Art Pro Week. Um, I had a quick question about professionalism in the art industry. Like, for example, if I'm networking at conventions or just places like that, you know, is it more professional for me be, me maybe not being dressed up as all the other people there in like cosplay or, you know, is that okay? I don't want it to like, I don't want to look just like a convention goer, kind of have that devalue what I'm doing or, I don't know. I was wondering if that was maybe, um, I don't know, maybe like, like a mindset some people would have that, you know, as like if I'm there doing professional networking, maybe I should look more professional. Um, I've been to a mixer event before, a really casual mixer, where there was a girl there dressed fully as a pirate. And she told me that I should always dress as crazy as I can um, so that people remember me better. That's like the other extreme. So I would like to hear what you guys think about this moving forward. So thank you and take care. I know Stella. From what? She's identifying herself as from the Turning Art Pro Week that I taught one year ago in Orange County that she came from LA to. So, yeah, she's sort of a student. Thanks, Stella. I don't know that I have an opinion because either one of them has an advantage and it's, it's, there's a disadvantage and advantage to each. Yeah, I think it depends on how you work each, e either side of that. Um, if 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 dressing up professionally just doesn't fit your personality, it's not. It's probably not going to work for you, right? But if if you dress up as a pirate and you act really weird and crazy and you turn people off, like that's not going to be a good thing either. Like mm -hmm. I think if you dress up as a pirate and you're very likable and and people enjoy your presence there as a pirate and they remember you because of that, that's great. Yeah. I think it could go either way. You you could be like the pirate that nobody wants to be around or you could be the pirate that everybody loves and and wants to hang out with after after the convention's over. It, like it really just depends <laughs> on how you act. You could be totally professional and fun at the same time and have personality. Yeah. Professional doesn't mean lack of personality. Right. We all design ourselves and we design ourselves not just for ourselves but for the people that we're interacting with and 
I've seen all four options as I'm thinking about it. What are the four options? The, the four options would be the person who dresses unusually and turns people off, the person who dresses yeah. unusually and they brand themselves that way and get known for the and people like it, uh, the person who is professional and would never do that, but they have really good professional relationships and the person who's professional would never do that and there's kind of a tightness to them <laughs> that, yeah. you know, there's, yeah, they, they wouldn't ever play. So, yeah, yeah, there's all four options and, and it really comes down to, to your individual option and whether you're inclined to do that. Professional and not professional and the good and bad of each one. Yeah. Essentially. But I, because somebody told yeah. you you should dress up unusually to make people attend to you is not necessarily solid advice. It, yeah. It depends on you and it depends on the people. You could be very memorable dressing up in a suit. Uh, <laughs> it does not matter. Let's put it this way. It's, I don't think there's an inherent advantage to branding yourself with unusual garb. Like garbage? No, no. Let's see. <laughs> let's let's see if I'm making up this word. Okay. I want I want to see if garb is in the dictionary. G A R B. Clothing or dress, especially of a distinctive or special kind. Okay. Some of the most successful people I know never wear anything but t-shirts and jeans. They don't wear underwear? Well, I haven't gotten that <laughs> you familiar don't know. to know. Maybe but not. Yeah, it, Maybe yeah, not. It's, it could be their little secret. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hi, guys. I'm David from San Diego, California. All right. I keep track of several different online art circles as well as social media hashtags. And the amount of so-called drawings I've seen of Billie Eilish or Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, they use photographs as reference in the past couple of years, is tiresome and irritating. In my opinion, these are just imprecise photocopies of that. While yeah. are impressive to laymen who are outside the art community, add nothing new in the world and crowd out the sage for people who have real technical ability or something meaningful to express. Do you think that there's any artistic merit to these painstaking replications of photographs? Thank you for the wonderful podcast. Cheers. Yeah, I do think there's merit to it. And we yeah, mentioned it on our first podcast in 2019. Really? Yeah. What did we say about that? It was about uh, attempting photorealism, attempting copying. Uh, and trying to get things right, there's merit to it because it can help you gain skill. And I understand about seeing the same thing over and over and how tiresome it gets. But there is mm -hmm. the answer to the question for me is there is merit to it, but I do understand. Well, so you're saying the merit, it's useful to the artist that did it because they're learning. Yeah. I think he's asking if there's merit, if, if there's any value to the art, like bringing value to the world with your art. I, I think there is. I, I think that's unfair. Just because you are tired of seeing Joaquin Phoenix's Joker doesn't mean other people who love <laughs> the Joker are tired of it. They want to yeah. see more, yeah. right? Like, it's just not for you. Who cares if you're tired of it? Like, right. I might see some other subject matter one time and I'm already tired of it because I hate it. Like, not everything's going to be for everybody. Yeah. So, just because you don't like it doesn't mean there's no merit to it. He didn't sound like he's he's old, but he's starting to have the old people phenomenon <laughs> yes. happen. That's right. Sorry. That's true. Yeah. Not everything's for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone's trying to please you. But I see what also he's saying is that there's it's like they're losing individuality. They're not adding much new newness <laughs> to the community mm -hmm. because it's been done so many times. But Everybody kind of does it in their own way. Yes. We can't help but do it. Yeah. We imitate our parents when we're little and we imitate the art and artists and filmmakers and actors that we admire when we're teenagers and in our early 20s. And then as our tastes develop, the creative ones will start to dislike certain things about it. So, here's the best you can do with your critical spirit is if that's bothering you, you say, I am going to do something beyond that. And you're tapping into the dissatisfaction with what everybody else is happy with. And you may produce something that is exciting and new. Yeah. I think that creative dissatisfaction is exactly that. It's just not good enough to be doing these same images that everyone else is doing over and over and over. Get tired of it. Want to see if I yeah. can lift it up, fail a few times at it, maybe do it once. And then the new everybody just imitates this new thing will happen over and over. But 
I, I can't think of many people that I have known who have innovated as artists who have not had at least some of a critical spirit about what is popular. You know, Marshall, you know how I have Proco TV Instagram account where I share artwork that I personally enjoy? Mm-hmm. It's not, I don't share my own artwork. I, I share other artwork that I just come across and I like it. Right. So it, it's like my curation channel. Okay. So just lately, in like the past, I don't know, two weeks or so, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> this is funny, I shared two posts of Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. That I personally enjoyed. Okay, yes, I really love that movie. I, I just, I've always liked the Joker. Yeah, the Joker's been happening for a few years here. Yeah, but I I saw a lot more than two. There were a lot that I saw that I was like, cool, yeah, cool, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then these two that I did share, they're very different. I mean, we could show them here and we'll, we'll add links to them in, in the description. Okay. Um, the first one is by Pyru W. Daly. Here, let me see what his name is. Uh, Hicham Habchi. God, I'm sorry. I'm really butchering the name. But um, this person did one where he actually animated a little bit. He used some program to animate it. But the, just the the, uh, the painting itself is great. And then another one by Jens Clausens. Um, and his looks totally different from the other one. And they're totally not just paintings of a screenshot they they added their own style to them it's mm-hmm. very evident because they're you could see when you look at the rest of their work it's in their style it matches the rest of their work um and i just i love their take on it mm-hmm. so it, i think in it's like it doesn't matter to me if it's the joker or not but the specific execution of these two were really really good Right. And they they totally have merit. Yeah. Right? It, and so, yeah, maybe most of them are not good and they don't bring that bring much value, but those really good ones are. You could say the same thing about literally any other subject matter. Most portraits of anybody that are put out there are not going to be that great. Right. And they'll just be mostly ignored and then the some are going to be really good. I, I think yeah. it, it really is no different here. Uh, I, ha- I can think of an example. This has to do with story crafting, but it's, it's related. In the 1980s was maybe the worst decade in the history of television for writing. It was just a terrible, terrible decade. Television was garbage. And some people were pointing out it's garbage because it's got a television formula. You have to have the opening commercial and then a commercial in the middle and then this commercial toward the end. And they were blaming the structure, uh, the formula of it. And then the first three seasons of The Simpsons have several episodes. Krusty gets busted, Bart gets an F, Bart the Daredevil, and a few others that are brilliantly written. And they are written absolutely according to the formula of a half-hour sitcom. And it was not a problem with the formula It was a problem of a lack of inventiveness, a lack of creativity of what you could do with that formula. So, if the Joker is the popular image for everybody to try their hand at, well, that's okay. Let's just say everyone's going to do their version of the Joker and there's going to be some people who are not happy with what everyone else is doing and they're going to bring it up to a new level. Yeah. Here's one other thing though, and this is where we get the Marshall One Note of get beyond your current culture. The Joker at his best was not just inspired by the previous Joker and the previous Joker. More than one artist, more than one creative person went back to the silent movie era and saw what Conrad Veidt did in a movie called The Man Who Laughs which is extraordinary. And uh, that was such an over-the-top guy filled with glee and frightening that if you get out of what everybody else is looking at and look at stuff that other people aren't looking at, you might find yourself charged up to do something that will seem fresh because not everybody else is looking at it. Hi, Stan Marshall. I'm a 21-year-old who's been consistently drawing for my entire life. 
Even though I've been drawing for a long time, I never really studied art until last year, and I started reading the book recommendations on both your websites, as well as watching YouTube tutorials. I felt like I learned a lot at first and filled in gaps I was missing, but then information became repetitive. A lot of art books and other resources seem targeted at beginners, and I have had trouble finding more advanced tutorials. I currently am trying to improve my art by doing studies of reference photos or of artists I think have interesting styles, but I really enjoy learning from art books since they have so much information. I'm wondering if you two have book, video, etc. recommendations that you think more advanced drafts people can still learn from, or other ideas on how advanced artists can continue improving themselves and pushing their creative limits. If I had to be specific, I would be most interested in figure drawing and anatomy-related resources, but I honestly am looking to improve on anything related to draftsmanship, painting, or animation. Yes, I love the show. It has truly made a difference to me. Thanks. Stay healthy. Thank you. Uh, we have answered this question, I think, when we've done book reviews and talked about some that are more entry-level and more advanced. He, he said he's interested in primarily figure drawing and anatomy. I have a hard time believing that at 21, he has exhausted my anatomy course. Yeah, I do too. There's 360 lessons in there and they're all very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if you've gone through all of them, you probably have not mastered them. Mm -hmm. So, instead of moving on and finding other anatomy resources, which you sh absolutely could do, go back and learn more about the biceps again and you don't have to necessarily watch my biceps video again but just review your notes um look at some more photos of bicep or just arms in general do more studies i i doubt that you know everything about anatomy you don't need necessarily more resources on it no you just need to continue studying the resources you already have because, it, I mean, anatomy alone, you can spend decades in three yeah. books and keep learning from those three books. Yeah. I know I have. <laughs> I've, I've been in those books forever, along with photos of real people that I continuously like, okay, photo, okay, book, photo, book. What, what does this mean? And, and yeah, it, it's just, I, I have a hard time believing that he, he actually needs more advanced resources. I do too. And when it comes to perspective, you've got Scott Robertson's How to Draw a Book and and there's there yeah, there's you know that there are advanced resources. So if yes. you're 21 and you don't feel challenged by what's out there, then just create. Just yes. do your work and then respond to your own and others criticisms to it. Yeah. If you think you you've gone through all of it, let's just assume that you have remembered and you've mastered everything that I taught and everything that these perspective books have taught. Um, yeah, now it's about learning how to apply that inf information masterfully, and doing that is going to take you many many decades. Yeah. Um, one thing that you can do now, as you become more advanced, is to constantly just do more master studies and see how other masters are applying that information because there are an infinite amount of ways you can take these facts about anatomy and perspective and apply them to art. Um, and seeing how all these other master artists are doing it will improve your skills dramatically rather than just, you know, understanding the human body, now understanding how to use that information. I had a student who was about 16 or 17 when she first started taking classes with me at the community college. And by the time she was not even 19, she was getting tired of doing master studies. And she had done them as well as anyone I had seen. And when I sensed you're getting tired of it, but you've done it so well, this is the time to leap off onto your own thing, which she did. But she has, she's gone through a number of evolutions. She's become quite a celebrated character designer. Uh, if you, nobody's going to test you for your knowledge. Nobody's going to say, I don't know whether you know every, everything about perspective or anatomy or rendering. They're going to test you for your work. So, if you're getting bored or if you're saying, I know it all, then get to work and see how you're applying it because there's a big gap 
between understanding it and doing good things with it. How many teachers do you know that do the best artwork? It's not an issue of how much you know and how well you are communicating it. It is an issue of what you're choosing with your style and compositions and treatments of these subjects. Yeah. So, show us the work. <laughs> well, you know, to show us. <laughs> That's where it comes down to. People like Jim Lee, you know, who claimed that he didn't know anatomy or barely knew it and didn't know the name of most of the muscles. Nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. His drawings were so exciting that everybody was gasping at that. So, it's not that you can pass a test. Yeah. Get to work. Yeah. Start creating. Okay. Thank you for the question. Yes. Hey, Stan. Hey, Marshall. Longtime fan here. My name is Justice. Basically, you know, I've taken your classes, I've taken a few other classes, and I've seen, you know, the level of my work um, just get a lot better. Uh, thinking about the pieces, the paintings, sculptures, whatever that I've done in the past and, and the ones that I'm doing now and continuing to do, there's an obvious discrepancy there. My question is, um, thinking about portfolios, your past work, your current work, I mean, your, your current work and your future work will always be better, but what does that mean for our portfolios? Should we still have those things from the past that were good at the time, but maybe now are not as good? Should we still put those up? Or should we just, um, you know, put the thing that we're proud of right now? I know that growth is always going to happen and hopefully your work will always be better, but where do you draw the line? Uh, okay, thank you so much. I'd refer you back to that episode we did on showing portfolios and what the yeah. purpose of a portfolio is because it's to get a job, it's to solve a problem for a client. And if it's stuff that you did years ago and you can't do it quite as well, that could get you in trouble. And if it's your recent work, that's less likely to get you in trouble because it shows your level right now. So, keep in mind what the whole point is to let the yeah. client know what I can do or to yeah. trick the client into thinking I can do this so they'll hire me and then deal with it as you deal with it. Yeah. The, the, I think the question here isn't always, is this good? Or is this as good as I could currently do? But is yeah. does this add any value to getting me a, a job yeah. that I want right now? Right? Because some, sometimes if the if it's older, the style might have changed as well. And you might not want to draw like that anymore. Mm -hmm. You might be able to draw in that same way but better and that's totally fine. But if if you were drawing in a completely different way back then and it is really good, Still, you still think it's really good, but you don't want to draw that way any good anymore. Well, you got to take that out of your portfolio too, because that's not what you're trying to get a job for. Yeah. So you just, yeah, the portfolio just needs to represent what what you want to get a job to do now. Yeah. And remember the principle, which we probably talked about in that episode, that a person who's got something to lose, like a client, is going to judge us for the worst work in our portfolio. No, oh, this is the worst case scenario is that I could get something like this. So, yeah, we want to make sure we're coming in with something that will make the sale if that's the objective. Yeah. I was reviewing a portfolio yesterday of a graphic designer for mm -hmm. websites and she had like, I think she had five projects in, in that portfolio of different websites and one of them I could tell was a, was less, it was a worse quality than all her others. Mm -hmm. And I, it made me worry a little bit. It's like, ooh, is mine going to look like that one <laughs> or mm -hmm. the other ones? <laughs> yeah. So, even though I understand, it's like, that's probably the oldest one. She's probably better than that now. But it did make me a little bit concerned. <laughs> so, she probably should have just r removed that bad one. Yeah. But. <laughs> There's another thing this brings up though, that you may have some work in your portfolio that isn't that good. And you've got some work in there that's really good, enough to show you can do it more than once. But the person hiring you just so likes the vibe that they get with you that they feel like I can work with this person. And then they're going to be less worried that we can say this isn't quite working. They might even be so bold as to say that one isn't as good as the other. 
and watch your response and see whether you try to defend it or whether you say, yeah, yeah, and then maybe have a discussion on how it could be better. It would be a precursor to the working relationship that this person can give you negative feedback and that you're okay with it and that you would also seek how to make it better. Yeah, but usually portfolios are gone through really fast. I know. People flip through them and they, they don't consider the personality yeah. and, and all that other stuff. It's like they got 100 portfolios and they're just going to quickly pick the best one yeah. or the one that fits the job the best. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that can apply sometimes if you're being recommended could, yeah. by like a friend or something. Yeah, but... If the portfolio not, has not to stand always. on its own, yeah. ask yourself, what is the objective of this to get the job? But also ask yourself, what if I got the job and I'm not up to this level anymore? And you might not want to get yourself into that position. Okay, Marshall, this is the last one. Ready. Hi, Sam Marshall. My name's Scott. Uh, I'm a big fan of you guys' podcast. And I just had a couple questions, you know, about artists that you guys look up to. Uh, you talk a lot about Norman Rockwell and uh, Weindecker and stuff. And I, I just, I, I really, I'd really like to hear what you think about, you know, more um, abstract artists like, you know, uh, like Egon Sheila, Beverly McKeever, and even Gustav Klimt, who's more classically trained, you know, people that don't necessarily fit the, the standard when it comes to, uh, realism like fashion or uh you know leonardo or raphael for that matter so i'm, I'm just curious what you think about uh more modern figurative bars like that thank you so much guys like i said big fan uh i'd, I'd love to hear my question be answered thank you have a great day i would group fashion more with klimp and egon sheila like to me he he really pushes things like we, i could show one that i'm thinking of where he yeah. just i mean he's not trying to stick true to exactly what he's seeing he, uh, he's changing so much yeah i mean he, he's yeah it's very highly stylized he could push abstraction yeah uh, his question is what we think of them i i love that i love, the, I love I do too. all the ones he's mentioned I, I love those artists yeah um i i think that honestly as i get older <laughs> you know as time goes by i actually start enjoying that kind of stuff more and more yeah. Because the more realistic stuff just kind of starts to look the same to me. Um, th it, there needs to be some more something else now to make me enjoy it. And, mm -hmm. you know, but fashion, my love for fashion has never dwindled. <laughs> it, mm -hmm. it is constantly going up because of just how much uniqueness is in there. Yeah. Um uh, but yeah, I, I enjoy the more abstract, the more the, the more weird stuff more and more. It's just it's yeah. it's 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 interesting. It, it's got stuff to offer that uh, just copying nature doesn't anymore for me personally. <laughs> well, I admit that we keep saying the same artist names over and over. Yeah. And there's a reason for it is that some of them pop out of history and we have neglected certain ones like Gustav and Egon. And here is a reason why. In the 20th century, particularly the late 20th century, in art education, classic drafting skills that took anatomy and perspective and rendering got thrown out of art schools. And so, the revival that we are in is to go to an era previous to that, the first part of the 20th century where this skill was alive and being used by so many artists. And then by the time we get into the 60s and 70s, uh, 70s in particular, many illustrators did not know those classic skills, but they still did great work. And one of those touchstones, uh, Gustav Klimt is an example of Thomas Blackshear told about how Mark English, who was a great illustrator but not an anatomist or a master of perspective. This was the era of the graphic designer as illustrator, or the illustrator as graphic designer. And Mark English was so excited about Gustav Klimt's work and showed it to Thomas Blackshear, who did not get that into it at first, and then started to see how beautiful the flatness of this, the choices of the design, the tastiness of it, so that it gave Thomas a touchstone for what it could be as graphic design. And you can see the relationship between Mark English, Thomas Blackshear, Gustav Klimt, a lot of things in common. Uh, I just think that we haven't emphasized them because they are not the most obvious examples to go to for studying 
anatomy informant perspective and the classic Renaissance drafting skills. But there's no way that there's any intended disrespect toward them. Egon Schiele's genius in his young age and his willingness to distort and do the things he did is phenomenal. Yeah. So, thank you for bringing them up. You're acknowledging these people lean and lean and lean. And so, I just want to go in there and tug on a rope to try to get them over to another side and even mention it. There's two ways we can go with this. One is toward that discipline of expressivity and abstraction. Uh, the other is to look at artists who take the extremes of either. That is, they are extremely disciplined drafts people who really know that old craft and they're doing something that is so abstracted and simplified that it appeals to almost everybody but children in particular and those are cartoonists. Cartoonists are the ones who do not seek realism at all. It destroys it as a cartoon if you seek realism and yet, the classic cartoonists, particularly of the first half of the 20th century, had remarkable drawing skills. It might be worth taking some time to showcase, think about some of that as well. I don't know if I've told this, but uh, about the Russian Academy, the uh, Repin Academy in St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. uh, I have a friend, Leon, who went there and he's telling me that, so when the students are there, they're in these amazing, beautiful realistic, very academic style drawings, right? Everyone's seen them, the, the Russian, if you haven't, just look up Russian academic drawings, figure yeah. drawings, uh, they're, they're beautiful. Um, and when the students graduate, the tendency for everybody is actually to stop doing that because everybody wants to graduate beyond what they did in school and now do their own thing, right? It's like, Learning how to represent reality in this way is just like, this is what you do in school. This is just your training. And now, you become an artist. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's like the mentality. That, that, that's like what everybody tries to do after they graduate at these academies. Even though yeah. they, like, a lot of us <laughs> look at the stuff they did in school and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. That's amazing art. They, they're just like, that's not art. This is my practice drawing, you know. Yeah. This is my training. Um, so, I just thought that, that's an interesting mindset. I'm told there was something similar in training British actors who have been famous for being such good actors How so? is that there was something that happened in the mid to late 20th century. Previous to that, you would try to shed your dialect. Your, the accent that you have for wherever you are in England, you'd want to lose that. If you got an Irish accent, you'd want to lose that. And then I think it was Ian McShane who said that by the time he was studying, they were at that point smart enough to know, learn how to speak, learn how to control your voice, learn how to be clear, to hit the consonants well, to use your breath well, but don't lose your accent. And so, when you look at people like Ben Kingsley and, and Ian McShane and others who have distinct voices that are so localized, but still, they are skilled speakers. They're skilled mm -hmm. actors. And so, it's not a matter of losing your style to some big structure that says, do it like this. It is to get an understructure of strength and come out with your personal style your accent or your approach to drawing that is specifically you. You've borrowed things from all sorts of people. Nobody, nobody is born with an accent. They pick it up. Uh, and that way, you're, you're getting both. The training was to get you solid, to get you to be able to do what you want to do. The personality should not be squeezed out of it. Right. And now that's back, but back to all of these artists we mentioned. We mention these artists for a reason. They were top-notch at their craft and to study the things that we're trying to champion in this podcast, they are exemplary. But the ones you have mentioned are exemplary in their uniqueness, their creativity, they're stretching the limits, they're pushing things further. So, I would like to suggest that we do at least one podcast on expressivity and abstraction and then one on all of that variety that went on in cartooning in the 20th century. Oh, <laughs> that's a plug for our, our next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cartooning.
Yeah. Okay. Nice. I'd like uh, to talk about to have a to, to not have a, a session on an episode on cartooning seems that would be yeah. missing something. And it is related to your question. I mean, yeah. who is Gustav Klimt more like? Who is Sheila more like? Uh, are they more like Da Vinci, or are they more like some of the cartoonists of the 20th century? I think they're somewhere in the middle. Yeah, they're somewhere in the middle because cartooning is all about simplification. Yeah. They're not necessarily about simplification. Sometimes no. it's more about distortion, which- Distortion? Distortion. Cartooning is not about distortion. Yeah. So, th th there's, there, there's a little yeah. bit of a difference. Definitely overlap yeah. in areas, but yeah. They're, uh, Klimt, more even like, like graphic design. You know, it's, it's the choice of the layout, the flat surface, the attention on a line quality with Sheila as line quality that has this broken, yeah. uh, almost pathetic- uh, quality to the line as an abstract, yes. Yeah, so there's some simplification there. There's definitely that. Yeah, we'll take it up in, in other episodes. Cartooning, next week. <laughs> next week, yeah. Cartoons. Right. And the week after that, abstractivity, uh, expressivity and abstraction. Ex expressivity? How, how did we do with this, Stan? I think we did great. Did I, I like that. We, 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 had, we got through a lot of questions and I'm, I feel like uh, at least one of them was good. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> Well, thank you for your voicemails. Yes, and if you would like to submit another voicemail, we will probably do another voicemail episode in this season. So, go ahead and call that number in the description, leave a voicemail. Or, if you're not in the United States and you don't want to pay international fees to call us, you can just record your voice and send us an mp3 file to support at proco.com yeah. and that does the same thing. <laughs> and the voicemails are competitive. There's a lot of people asking questions. So, in order to get past the critical gauntlet of Charlie Nicholson, they've got to be yeah. thought-provoking questions that show you put some energy into this question. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs>